Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Lots going on to talk about today, including that announcement uh, we just had recently about the court ruling against some of the small refinery exemptions being granted by the EPA. Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, will join us to talk about that decision, what it means going forward, and possible impact on future exemption decisions made by the EPA. Will this change how they uh, their approach to this or not? We'll talk about that with Jeff Cooper. Also, the pork industry is fighting back against these imitation meat products using the name pork, and we'll talk with their director of science and technology for the National Pork Producers Council about an ad campaign that they have underway pointing out that uh, you can't have pork from a plant. So that'll be coming up later in the program. And on the subject of food, last week there was a panel of scientists who helped put together our federally funded nutrition policy in this country. They gathered in Houston for a public hearing, the first public hearing outside of Washington, D.C. in quite some time. And um, there's a big debate, of course, in this country about are the nutrition policies that have been set, are they actually working? And a lot of people pointing to the high um obesity rates in this country and especially concern with with young people we're going to talk with the executive director of the nutrition coalition on our program today and uh, get into that discussion about these um, policies that are in place supposedly to help us eat healthier but how are those really put together what are they based on and are they at all that impactful or not do they really influence much the way people eat they do have an influence on um, some programs like school lunches and things like that so uh, we'll be getting into that topic here in just a bit but we're going to start things off today with jerry hackstrom with the hackstrom report who's in arizona for a big dairy meeting hi jerry how are you uh well good morning i'm just fine it's beautiful weather here sunny at uh at uh, at eight o'clock in the morning here, uh, so uh, I'm having a very nice time. Uh, but I'm headed back to Washington today. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be speaking at a American Enterprise Institute event on the uh, caucuses in Iowa and the presidential elections and agricultural policy. So I'll be I'll be back to it very shortly. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, what you've seen and heard there at the dairy meeting. Well, I think the best line that I've gotten out of this is uh, what Michael Dykes, the CEO of uh, the International Dairy Foods Association, said, which is, today we eat dairy, we don't drink dairy. And uh, Michael made the point that even though there's a lot of publicity about the decline in the consumption of fluid milk, uh, we actually, actually, the consumption of dairy goes up when you consider all the cheese that we eat. And he said the companies that have gotten into trouble, such as uh, Gordon's and Dean Foods, are companies that that focused on the on fluid milk, uh, and the, and that the companies that are making cheese and other products are doing uh, are doing quite fine. Is there a feeling of optimism about uh, export opportunities for U.S. dairy products? 
Um, well, I'd say there's a hope, uh, but like every other sector in agriculture, the people want to see actual product moving. And, uh, you know, the, the, of course, the two focuses are China. We've now got the agreement with China and then Canada, uh, where the, the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement is supposed to make it easier to get U.S. dairy products into Canada. Unfortunately, the Canadians have found lots of ways in the past to keep U.S. products out. So the question now is, will they let them in? Uh, uh, so I'd say that, you know, it's yes, they're optimistic, but uh, uh, but watching carefully to see that, it, that the exports actually happen. You mentioned the uh, situations for Dean Foods and Borden's. Uh, it, and, and you referenced uh, their kind of their business model or business plan, maybe focusing too much on the on fluid milk. Is is that what that is that how that is looked at within the industry? Uh, perhaps bad decisions on their part, or is that a is it a red flag of a, a bigger concern for the entire dairy industry moving forward? Well, I, I would say that that it's looked at from the perspective that these two companies did not diversify in the way that some others have. Uh, uh, so I think it's more, more that, uh, uh, but, but the, the tone of the entire meeting is that you have to be, you have to be innovative, uh, uh, and they have these, uh, in the lobby, these dairy cases in which they have new products. For example, they are putting, uh, now the packaging cottage cheese with the peaches and the pineapple in it. People have always eaten uh, cottage cheese with fruit, but they've had to mix it themselves. But now you can, you can get it in, in a container that, can, that, has, that has both things. And uh, a market analyst who spoke at the meeting yesterday said the number one thing uh, in American food consumption today is convenience. People are actually eating at home more. The number of restaurant visits are down but they don't want to spend a lot of time cooking or even preparing food. That's an interesting trend, eating more meals at home. That, that's kind of a switch from what we had seen in recent years. Uh, well, it is. And the, the market analyst uh, said that it, these, these meals are prepared in a combination of ways, that there would be some cooking, but also the consumption of a lot of prepared foods. But, of course, the people do not want to have uh, uh, prepared foods that are high in calories, high in carbs. Uh, they want uh, healthier uh, prepared foods. Uh, and uh, th- uh, they, they even talked about you know, changes in the kinds of chips that people will eat, um, uh, getting away from... Uh, from from chips made from potatoes and using chips made from garbanzo beans because those have more protein in them. Always interesting what consumer trends are, and boy, when you're in, especially in the food business, you have to be aware of what those are, right? And uh, uh, if you get caught behind on those things, as we talked about with some companies, uh, you you can really uh, it can really cost you. So, uh, and I always found the dairy industry to be very innovative when it comes to these new products. So it's interesting to hear what what's being worked on. Well, sounds like a good meeting, Jerry. Have a safe trip back to D.C., and we'll talk to you again soon. 
Yes, I'll, I'll look forward to uh, informing you in a week or so about uh, what's going on in Washington. Yep, we'll talk about it. Thank you. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report, checking in with us today from a big dairy meeting out in Arizona. Well, just recently, there was this panel of scientists got together in Houston, Texas, a public hearing on our nutrition policies in this country. We're going to talk with the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition about this very controversial, much debated issue. That's coming up next here on AOA. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, there's always a lot of debate, a lot of questions, and a lot of criticism about our nutrition policies in this country, and a lot of people questioning just how effective are they with concerns over high obesity and diabetes rates in this country. Um, recently, there was a meeting, a panel of scientists in Houston, Texas, holding a first, uh, the first public hearing outside of Washington, D.C. on this topic in some time. And I um, want to get into this subject and, uh, and how these guidelines, these policies are put together and just how much impact they have. Joining us now is the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, Nina Teicholtz. Nina, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. Great to be here with you. Uh, first of all, what about this hearing, this public hearing that was held recently in Washington, D.C.? What came out of that? Uh, rather, it was, held in, it was held in Houston, right? It was held in Houston, I'm sorry. In Houston. So this is the expert committee that reviews the science every five years and updates it for our dietary guidelines for Americans. Um, it's a very influential policy. It comes out every five years. And... Um, this committee is in the process of reviewing the science. So this was just one step along the way. Uh, and they revealed a number of things that we could talk about. But um, it, they really just they re- reviewed the science and they took oral comments from the public, which they do uh, two times during the course of their work. You know, I think a lot of people say, well, I don't really pay that much attention to these uh, guidelines uh, that, uh, that come out from right. the government. And so they say... How, how big a deal is this? But it does have a lot of influence, doesn't it, on, on things like school lunch programs and things like that? Yes. I think people, and I myself did not understand the influence of the guidelines. When I started out my work in nutrition, I spent um, a decade writing a book called The Big Fat Surprise that informed me on nutrition. And people don't go to a .gov website to find out about their diet, right? But hmm. There are so many ways that the dietary guidelines reach pretty much each and every American. So they do that through school lunches, feeding programs for the elderly. They determine what's in military mess halls. Um, they reach hospitals, prisons, and they are pretty much downloaded as, and considered the gold standard by doctors, nurses, dietitians, nutritionists. So when you go to an office of your doctor or nutritionist and they say, this is what to eat, this is a healthy diet, fruits, nuts, 
uh, vegetables, seeds, low-fat dairy, lean meats. That is all the guidelines coming to you. Um, you just don't realize it. What goes into uh, establishing those guidelines? Well, they were launched in 1980, and that was also the very year that the obesity epidemic in America turned sharply upward. Um, and the reality is they were launched based on extremely weak science. So the, pro- the guidelines have really been a process of trying to uh, reverse like walk back the weak science that they were originally founded upon. So that's why we've had, for example, a reversal on cholesterol caps. We no longer are told to limit our dietary cholesterol. All those egg white omelets and shellfish that you didn't eat was um, what turned out to be for nothing, which is a shame because all the nutrients, as many of us know, are in the yolk of the egg and there are many needed nutrients also in shellfish. Also, the low-fat diet has been walked back. Um, so the guidelines are just based on extremely weak evidence. There are a number of still existing recommendations that, that my group believes is ba- are based on weak evidence. Um, that would include the SALT recommendation that lower is better for everyone. Uh, there's not evidence for that. And, and there are also serious questions about the, the limits on saturated fats. You know, you gave some good examples, and I think every time there's a switch in that would you know, something we're told we shouldn't eat, and all of a sudden then they come out and say, oh, it's okay now that that we were wrong before. Every time that happens, it seems like that weakens the credibility of the guidelines and and people question them even more then. And justifiably so, because they are fundamentally based on this weak kind of science that shows, you know, many people remember this from science, you know, 101, but it's like they show, they're based on a science that shows association but not causation. So they're based on this very weak science that just doesn't hold up when when experiments are done. Um, but if you've already launched these, this advice to an entire nation, it's very hard to reverse. Um, so what we see right now is really a tremendous battle trying to reverse what are turned out to be recommendations based on evidence that just has not held up. We're talking with Nina Teicholz, Executive Director of the Nutrition Coalition. You know, so often these guidelines, the 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 story that comes out of them in within agriculture is, uh, are they reducing the recommendations for a particular segment like meat or or dairy or something like that, uh, and that creates quite a few headlines and oftentimes questions or concerns about that particular segment of agriculture that feels like uh, they're uh, you know they're being uh, shortchanged on that. Uh, kind of take us behind the scenes about what really needs to be looked at here when they come up with these uh, policies and are they really looking at the science when they make these decisions? So uh, when they review the science, um, so let's just take the topic of saturated fats, which really affects just the two subjects that you mentioned, meat and dairy, right? So dairy, milk, we've seen seen milk um, companies go bankrupt uh, just recently, the reduction in whole milk in America has been, um, since 1970s, reduced by about 79% our consumption of whole milk, and that has made that whole category decline because skim milk just doesn't replace it because it's not as tasty and filling, um, some might argue, and so they have to put sugar in it to get kids to drink it. Well, that is based on the saturated fat caps. 
that we are not supposed to eat too much saturated fat. The same is true for lean meat. We're supposed to eat lean meat and not red meat, um, which has more saturated fats in it. That saturated fat science is really not based on, on any rigorous evidence. Or actually, in the case of saturated fats, which is the subject that I studied in depth, there were a lot of rigorous um, science trials on saturated fats that were done in the 60s and 70s, uh, but they were, and they were incredibly good trials, but they were all conducted before the guidelines started and the guidelines never considered them. They, and they've never gone back to look at them. And, the, and in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of reconsideration of those fats and um, all of the studies have concluded recently that saturated fats um, do not have no effect on cardiovascular which disease, which is to say heart disease or total mortality. So, the rate limiting factor on these industries, dairy and milk, really comes down to a recommendation that is not based on good science. I could go on. I mean, we could talk about salt, um, but I think that that it's really a problem that the guidelines have become what's become the standard process for them is just to select this kind of weak associational science and and use that to make population wide recommendations. Which um, there really is no system rigorous system in the world that that makes recommendations based on such weak science it's really only at usda that they do this so obviously there have been some other agendas at play here they have not been following the science are you uh any more confident or optimistic that in the future they will start uh going with the science more um i think that it, it, that is a, this is precisely what our group is working on. We are trying to um, get some interest by members of Congress who could apply some pressure on USDA and say, um, look, there was a National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine report that came out saying that you are not following a state-of-the-art system for reviewing the science. And the National Academy of Sciences said you need to use one of these state-of-the-art internationally recognized systems. And that report was ignored by USDA. So we are trying to get some interest in Congress to, to get USDA to follow those National Academy's recommendations. And yes, I think we could possibly make, it, make a difference, maybe not in this round of the dietary guidelines, but going forward, it's, I think it's certainly possible. When do they come out again? When's, when's the next announcement on uh, uh, the, the, the guidelines? How often do they set these? Every five years, and the next iteration is supposed to come out at the end of this year, and then they'll be good. Well, they'll be in place from 2020 to 2025. All right. So, so and, and I fully expect a rollover of the last set of dietary guidelines, with you know, with perhaps one or two exceptions. So the the fight your fight continues to get them to look go with the science, right? So maybe not totally in this one, but you're hopeful for the future after this one. You know, we'll see what we can do for this one. And I think yep. that, you know, the fight for the science is so important. It is not a trivial matter because of the health of America, as you know. Yeah, Neat. yeah. Nina, thank you very much. Uh, good perspective on this. And, and I'm sure we'll be talking when they do come out here. These guidelines come out this year, uh-huh. and uh, we'll talk again, okay? I hope so. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Nina. Nina Teicholz, Executive Director of the Nutrition Coalition. Up next, Jeff Cooper president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Stay with us on AOA. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. 
A mix in the grain and oil seed sector early on this Tuesday. Minus signs in soybeans and wheat. Corn futures stabilizing after Monday. March corn gapped lower yesterday to begin the week and closed with a solid decline. The March contract now trading below the 10-day, 20-day, and 40-day moving average. That is a negative near-term trend signal. 10-day moving average and 20-day seen at 386 and three quarters. An hour into the day, March corn 384 and a quarter, up three and three quarters. Chicago wheat trending two to four cents lower. Buyers swooped in and supported March intraday yesterday on weakness to 559 and a half on Monday. On this Tuesday, an hour in, March Chicago wheat 570 down two and a quarter. Kansas City March down four and a half at 482. Minneapolis Spring Wheat March down four at 543 and a quarter. Soybean futures bending a penny or two lower. March at 895 and a half down a penny and three quarters. May down a penny and three quarters at 909 a bushel. For livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures, we've got a narrow mix operating with expanded limits today after some limit losses yesterday. February live cattle 15 cents higher at 122.40. Feeder cattle March up 45 at 135.62. Lean hog futures February up 72, 66.67 per hundred weight. On Wall Street, the Dow up 132 points, Nasdaq up 72, S&P up 23, March crude oil in New York up 15 cents. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. A federal court has ruled EPA did not have the authority to issue small refinery exemption extensions to three companies that were not granted waivers originally. And in a ruling handed down by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit in Denver, the court also found EPA abused its discretion by not explaining its conclusion that a small refinery could suffer a disproportionate economic hardship while also maintaining refiners uh, passed on RFS compliance costs to consumers at the pump. Significant rulings here. I want to talk about it with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Uh, Jeff, this has to kind of be, we told you so. This is what you were saying, right? <laughs> well, it's what we've been saying for at least two years now, Mike, and it's uh, very good news and, and uh, very comforting to, to see the Tenth Circuit affirm uh, our position and our concerns that we've been raising for the last two years about EPA's abuse of the Small Refinery Waiver Program. What does this mean going forward, you think? Uh, will this impact or influence EPA's decision-making process on small refinery exemptions? Well, we think it will. And as you pointed out, uh, the court really focused on just overturning three small refinery exemptions that EPA had inappropriately given to two refineries owned by Holly Frontier and and one refinery owned by CVR Energy. But we think the implications of this uh, decision go far beyond just those three refinery exemptions, and and we really see this as a game changer, and we think it will fundamentally change the way EPA addresses these petitions for exemptions under the RFS moving forward. And and really what this boils down to is that the court ruled that EPA cannot 
extend exemptions uh, to any small refineries uh, if those refineries had exemptions that had lapsed uh, or never had an exemption in the past. The, the judges uh, said the statute is very clear that EPA may only extend a pre-existing exemption. And so, so I guess, you know, as an example, if a refinery uh, had an exemption in 2013 and then didn't get one in 2014 or 15, the courts are saying they can't come back and ask for one in 2016. And we know from EPA's data that they were indeed granting lots of exemptions to refineries who had not had exemptions in the previous years uh, or had seen a lapse in that exemption. So th this is, uh, uh, you know, a decision that has much broader implications than just the three exemptions uh, at issue here. Can EPA appeal this ruling? Uh, they, they can, and, and we do expect them to. There, there's really two things they can do. They can ask the Tenth Circuit to rehear the case uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, put it before a different set of judges from the Tenth Circuit, um, or they can go to the Supreme Court and ask the Supreme Court uh, to take up uh, this case. Uh, they would have 90 days to uh, ask the Supreme Court to, to take up the, the challenge uh, overturn the challenge, and, and they would have 45 days uh, to ask the Tenth Circuit to, to rehear the case. So we do expect that they will do one, uh, one or, or both of those things. Um, but again, you know, the opinion that was published on Friday is, is 99 pages. It's very thorough. It's very well reasoned, and we're quite confident that it's going to stand up to any any further challenges should EPA decide to to, to appeal this. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, this is the latest in what is now uh, a rather lengthy uh, set of events that you can point to about the behavior and the pattern of EPA in granting these small refinery exemptions. I mean, just off the top of my head, I think about, you know, they have not followed Department of Energy recommendations, even though they claimed they were doing so. Uh, they were citing a court case uh, that made them do these things, and basically they were already doing it before the court case uh, and yep. before the results of that court case. I mean, this is a pattern we it, it's very well established now of how they've gone about this. It is, and it really goes all the way back to this time two years ago. It was the beginning of 2018 when uh, former administrator Scott Pruitt uh, really started just doling out exemptions to every small refinery that was coming to ask for one. Uh, and, and the court case you mentioned uh, that they were using and kind of hiding behind as justification uh, was actually decided by the Tenth Circuit uh, Court as well. Um, so we have the same court uh, basically, uh, you know, reversing or overturning uh, some of the key elements of, of that 2017 decision that EPA was, was really hiding behind to justify the massive increase in, in the exemptions it was giving out. Um, so we, we do feel like, you know, hopefully this is, um, you know, this is the end, we, we hope. This is, we hope this is the culmination um, of this sordid chapter in EPA's mismanagement of the RFS and we'll lay down some, some very explicit rules of the road moving forward and keep EPA from further abusing that program. Because if not, then you just have to keep taking them back to court, right? Well, that, that's right. And we, we do have a, a, a handful of other pending legal challenges around this issue. Um, we're looking carefully at those to see how this ruling on Friday might impact our, our proceedings in those other uh, venues. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, we are not going to stop 
uh, defending and protecting the renewable fuel standard and, and insisting uh, that EPA follow the law. And, you know, when, when we have exhausted uh, every channel and, and tried to fix this administratively with EPA through a diplomatic process and it doesn't work, we're, we're going to take them to court. And, and, and we're going to continue to do that uh, until we're confident that uh, the agency is, is enforcing the law, which is a very good law that Congress gave it back in 2007. This will no doubt be a big topic of conversation when we gather in Houston, February 10th, 11th, and 12th for the National Ethanol Conference, and you have quite a program put together for that. We, we do. We're very excited about the conference this year. Uh, we think we have some some positive news to talk about. Uh, you know, 2020 is off to a good start for us uh, be, because of this court case and because of some of the trade deals that, that are occurring and, and uh, just several other things. So we are very uh excited and, and looking forward to a, a gathering in, in Houston. Um, we've, you know, we've got a lot of registrations in. Our, our attendance is going to be up this year from last year. Uh, and I think uh, we've got some just really great speakers and, and experts that are going to be there to, to, to really talk about everything uh, ethanol for, for a couple days in Houston. Yeah, looking forward to it. And you've just announced that uh, Undersecretary for Trade, Ted McKinney, will be speaking at the National Ethanol Conference. And I know a lot of the hope for this year and beyond lies with uh, export opportunities for ethanol. That's absolutely right. And and we're very excited to have Undersecretary McKinney join us at the conference. Uh, There is a lot of news and and buzz around the Phase 1 China deal. and, And we know that ethanol and distillers grains both are included in that phase one agreement. Uh, you know, we, we just saw USMCA uh, finally ratified, and, and of course Canada and Mexico are, are two key markets for our exports. Uh, we've got, you know, ongoing trade disputes with Brazil and, and, and Peru and other countries, so we have a lot of irons in the fire in terms of trade and export issues, and, and very excited that uh, Undersecretary McKinney is going to be there to, to help us sort that all out. Jeff, I was just at the biodiesel conference, and as they look ahead, and they're very hopeful and optimistic moving ahead, and a lot of that optimism based on uh, the low-carbon standards that states mm-hmm. like California and others are, are putting into place, creating opportunities for a fuel like biodiesel. How, does, how do those policies also impact ethanol? Well, well Mike, that's, that's a great question, and we, we too are very excited about the prospect of, of state low-carbon fuel standards if, if they're done right. Um, in California, we have seen ethanol generate more greenhouse gas reductions and, and more carbon credits under that program than any other fuel. Uh, about 40% of the carbon credits generated under the California LCFS have come from, from ethanol. Um, and so we, we think uh, ethanol holds great potential to help other states uh, achieve their, their carbon reduction goals and there's really quite a bit of activity at the state level and a lot of conversations happening. There's 10 states in the Northeast that are considering a, a regional low-carbon fuel standard. Uh, Colorado's looking at a program. There's discussion about a Midwest-focused uh, uh, low-carbon fuel standard. So a lot of uh, energy and attention on that issue. And we think ethanol has a tremendous role to play there and a great story to tell. This is a critical time, isn't it? A lot of these decisions that are being made or about to be made uh, on our energy programs and our fuel supply and fuel use when it comes to the uh, the environmental issues, uh, some yep. decisions made now will have long-term implications. Absolutely. I think you look at the, the RFS as an example of that. Uh, you know, we, we today are, are seeing 
the, the fruits of, uh, you know, policy that was, was adopted in 2005 and 2007. This will be the 15th anniversary this year of the original renewable fuel standard. Uh, so these, these policies do have long-lasting impacts, uh, which is why it's so important that, that policymakers get it right uh, when they're crafting new energy and climate policy. And, and we do feel like we're kind of at a, uh, you know, at a point of inflection where we're going to see some, some new policy here in the next few years on climate-related uh, issues and, and new fuels and, and new energy policy. Uh, so we're going to be paying very close attention to those developments both at the federal level and at the state level. We'll look forward to seeing you in Houston for the National Ethanol Conference, February 10th through the 12th. Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Thanks, Jeff. See you in Houston. Sounds great, Mike. Looking forward to it. All right. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting meeting. A lot going on, and uh, with this uh, really court victories for the uh, the court victory for the renewable fuels industry, uh, giving them some uh, hopefully some momentum going into 2020. Uh, so I'll be at that conference. I'll be broadcasting from the National Ethanol Conference February 11th and 12th. Also, want to mention that I'll be broadcasting from the uh, Cattle Industry Convention. Uh, next week, next Thursday and Friday, the 6th and 7th, that will be in San Antonio. All right, up next, uh, the fight back against imitation meat products. Stay with us. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The National Pork Producers Council has digital ads in the Des Moines airport saying pork it comes from a pig not Silicon Valley and pork you can't make it from plants unless you feed them to a pig first let's talk about it with Dan Kovich director of science and technology for the National Pork Producers Council Dan thanks for joining us obviously uh, the pork industry responding to all these imitation products on the marketplace now using the name of pork absolutely you know this is we feel probably the most brazen uh, misuse of a term so far uh by this this new plant-based industry i don't think there's really any confusion out there that pork comes from a pig Um, we've got you know decades of food labeling law and regulation and really centuries of precedence behind us to say that though we're fine with people making these products selling them they just can't use our good name on them obviously uh, a lot of attention in iowa right now the iowa caucus is coming up and uh, so des moines a key place the des moines airport a key place to run these ads Absolutely. We know there's going to be a lot of people going through there, and I mean, you know, there's no better place than Iowa to highlight what pork is. Uh, we really want to get that message out there that, again, this is a, a step too far. Pork is such a specific word that means such a specific thing that to put this on any other product, it would be the same thing if I, you know, was trying to sell ground beef in the store and called it pork. Blatantly illegal. We feel this is too. Yeah, you are. As an industry, you're protecting your brand. Absolutely. Again, this is not about trying to prevent these products from hitting the market. You know, we are very confident that our product can compete against any other facsimile people want to put up there. 
it's about using these terms correctly. And as you said, protecting our good name. Uh, you know, pork producers are really proud of the pork they produce. Uh, and for anyone else to kind of come along and, and usurp that name is, is just not appropriate. Well, I'm glad to see the industry uh, responding and, and being aggressive, getting your message out there. Uh, will we see any expansion of this campaign to other places? Well, we're certainly, you know, looking at all our options right now to, again, protect the use of that word pork. So this is certainly not the last thing you're going to see or hear from us. Um, again, we're really looking to um, protect that term and do what we need to do to get our message out and make sure that the word pork is protected because, again, it, it comes from farms that have pigs, and, and that's what we need to, to keep making sure is clear to everyone. With all the publicity, with all the push for these uh, imitation uh, plant products, uh, imitation meat products from plants uh, in the marketplace, and they've had a lot of money behind them, they've got a lot of attention. I kind of wondered how would they do once, would they stand up to the scrutiny when people started looking at them more closely? We have seen some stories where uh, the sales are down, have come back from their previous highs on this and maybe kind of indicating maybe some of the luster is off of that but uh as you said this isn't about their right to be in the marketplace you're not questioning that but there has to be some fairness here and they just can't come in and use your name exactly you know i think if consumers really look at these products a lot of these plant-based products are highly processed and they're really not nutritionally equivalent regardless of what claims they might want to make about taste or appearance um, it's a very different product. And, you know, they certainly, again, they need to be held accountable to the same labeling standards. We have incredibly detailed standards of identity for all meat products under the USDA's uh, Food Safety Inspection Service that are rigorously applied and enforced. And really for plants outside that meat, or excuse me, for foods outside that meat family, we need to have the same thing too. We need a level playing field. We need everyone respecting those laws, those naming conventions that we have done in the meat industry for, for decades. I like, I like the campaign and the words you're using because they're, they're, they're simple, common sense, and, and right to the point pork it comes from a pig you know not from a plant not from silicon valley i mean i think people can relate to that understand that and 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 say yeah that makes sense yeah i mean there really honestly should be no confusion about right i think everyone knows what pork is and you know um we just want to make sure that that remains the case for years to come yeah, it shouldn't be a question, but we've seen it. We've seen it with dairy. The dairy industry fighting this, and and you know they're trying to point out too. Milk comes from a lactating animal, not from a a plant. You know, I mean, uh, sometimes you have to go back and explain the obvious, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and arguably some words, maybe burger or patty. I'm not saying they are, but you know, might be a little more general use in the English language. But I mean, when it comes to pork, I mean, come on, you can't get much more specific than that about what it is. And that's certainly why we feel we need to to draw a line here. You know, if you're going to use the word pork or if you're going to use the word bacon, you better be doing it legally. Yeah, and I love the line, you can't make it from plants unless you feed them to a pig first. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. Well, really, all meat, all meat is plant-based, right? <laughs> Depending on how you want to look at it. But pork, that pig is a critical step there. 
Yep. So those ads are in uh, the Des Moines airport now, and uh, I, I hope we see more of these types of ads in other places and uh, and hear the message from uh, uh, groups like yours, the pork producers, in, in getting this out and just reminding people of uh, what they should already know, but uh, just kind of reminding them uh, of you know what pork really is and where it comes from. Uh, Dan, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about this in the future. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Dan Kovich, he is the Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Uh, so we're seeing the dairy industry step up, the beef industry step up, the pork industry step up, responding to these new products coming into the marketplace, these imitation uh, products that uh, – uh, and, and they're not saying they shouldn't be there. They don't have a right to be in the marketplace. They're just saying, don't use our names. And in this case, uh, the pork industry going with these. Pork, it comes from a pig, not Silicon Valley. And pork, you can't make it from plants unless you feed them to a pig first. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.